discovered last night, we live in a great little town, don't we? If you haven't done already done so, I would encourage everyone to drive downtown at night. Just, just it takes maybe five minutes at the most. It's, it's a great little small home town that we live in. And sometimes we, don't, we take it for granted, I think, a lot of the times. I just walked down there. There was an event in the square last night for to help um, some people in need. And I just happened to walk down there. And it's, it really is a great hometown that we live in. And has nothing to do with the message. Just wanted to throw that out there today. All right. um, anybody in here a history buff? Like history? Uh, th- when I was in school, that was my topic. It, much to neglect of almost every other topic most of the time, because I, I absolutely love history. I love doing research. I love sitting down and looking at how things connect, and one person here, and one action the person does over here makes this person do this and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what I want to look at today. Um, we're going to be looking at the birth of Christ. Of course, this time of the year, this is what we're celebrating, right? This is what we're, we're, we're all about Christmas. And I hope that's where our focus is when we're talking about Christmas. The presents are nice and the shopping is nice. And, well, the sh- sometimes the shopping isn't nice when you get the credit card bill at the end. But, <laughs> but the presents are nice, right? And, and the family coming together is great. But we have to keep our focus on the reason that we're doing all of that, right? And it's the birth of Christ. And when you look at the birth of Christ and you look at the story of the birth of Christ, there are a few what I would call fringe players that sometimes we kind of overlook the importance of their actions. It could have been something small or something large that help us form the narrative of Christ's birth. And as we go through and look at these players, I want to ask you to keep in mind not just who, as we see here, but I want you to look at this, and as we go through the four that I'm going to talk about this morning, I want you to ask, who are you? Which one of these four would you most identify with in your life right now? Would you call yourself or classify yourself as, as we go through and look at this this story? If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, um, we're going to be mainly in Luke. I'm going to use the the Luke version of Christ's story. We're going to jump into Matthew for a little bit, but mainly in Luke. And we're going to start at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start right at the beginning in verse 1. And we say, In these days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This was the first registration that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. So we see here, right, that everyone gets called to come and go and be registered. Now think back to an, a major event that's happened in your life. Normally that event, be it how you met your significant other, your spouse, or maybe the birth of a child, or the job that you have, or something like that, normally that event is going to have a catalyst to it, right? 
It's going to have something that ignited it or started it down the path that you're going to. Well, we see here quite clearly, and in those days it came to pass that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the catalyst of our story here, right? Because he did something that wasn't out of the ordinary. He did something that actually by Roman law was required to be done every 14 years. We have a census taken in this country, what, every 10 years, right? Well, Roman law required it every 14 years. But who was Caesar Augustus? He was actually related to Julius Caesar. He was actually an adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. And for those of you who are studying the Ephesians class with me downstairs, you know that word adopted is very important in Roman law because when he becomes adopted to Caesar, all the rights and privileges and things like that are bestowed upon him when he becomes adopted. So when the little knife party on the Senate steps happens to Julius Caesar, he actually becomes ruler of Rome. And as part of him being ruler of Rome, he kind of strikes a balance between the Jews and the Gentiles. And you may have heard this term Pax Romana. Sometimes as you're studying through things, it means the Roman peace. He's the one who instituted this. He was able to level out and balance peace between these two things. But what he does here is something very small and very simple. He says, I'm going to follow Roman law, and I'm going to have everyone be counted. That's the catalyst to our story. That's what kicks the whole birth of Christ off. Now, of course, God is in control and God is in overseeing all of it. It's not simply, I'm going to do this. God controls everything. There's no doubt about that. No one's ever questioning that. But he controls things by having humans make decisions by our own free will. Right? We're not robots. That wouldn't show love if we were robots. So he says, I'm going to go ahead and do what the law requires. And the point is, sometimes the simplest acts cause the greatest achievements. See, he does something incredibly simple, having no idea what calling for this census is about to kick off. He has no clue what's about to happen. He just says, put the decree out, Call everyone, we're going to do what we do every 14 years. So we have a catalyst, right? Well, as you think back once again on those events of your life, when that catalyst kicks off, when that catalyst happens, when those events happen and transpire, after they occur, normally what are you going to have? You're going to have a witness, right? You're going to have somebody that's going to either be there while it's occurring or you're going to have someone that's going to go tell everybody about it, right? And that's what we have here. If you go on, I should have made this bigger so I could actually read it on the screen, but that's okay. Go to Luke, if you're going to go on Luke 2, 8. The same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock at night. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I'd be terrified too, I think, right? Every time you see an angel of the Lord appear, they're terrified. The people that they appear to 
that word terrified or terror, not in the horror movie terror type, more awestruck, right? Because their angels of the Lord are having God's presence right there with you, right? So they're terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you the good news and the great joy that will be, be for all people. Today in the city of David, our Savior was born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. We'll find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts and the angels, and with the angels praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to he who is favored. Nice to keep up with it. I did. All right. So the angel announces this, right? And you can see the rest of it here up on screen. He announces it and they go. But let's pause for a minute here and think, think about it. One of the Christian urban myths, I guess you could say, is how you classify it. You ever when you heard the story of the shepherds, been told, oh, shepherds were despised back then. You ever heard this? Shepherds were people that were looked down upon, that weren't very respected. And in this kind of an odd group of people for God's messengers to come and give witness to, well, when you look through the Bible and you, when you think and compare that statement to what's actually in the Bible, it's not right. See, I mean, we, we see you at the very beginning, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Job was a shepherd. So when you think of this, shepherds were not well-liked, well, you can go on. Give your old shepherd of Israel who lead Joseph like a flock, you will dwell between the cherubim and shine forth. Ezekiel, as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among. That's Old Testament. So some of you say, well, that might, that's different. That's Old Testament. It's, it doesn't apply to the New Testament, right? It's, it, the times have changed. Rome would have changed. Rome would have put the shepherds in a different place. Well, John, I am the good shepherd. This is Christ talking. Christ isn't going to use a term of something that's despised that he's not going to be able to connect with. Then in Acts, we see, therefore, take heed of yourselves and all, all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We see this idea of shepherding throughout the Old and the New Testament. So when someone says to you, oh, the shepherds were a despised class, the shepherds were... No, that's not right. Biblical evidence does not support that. So why the shepherds? That's the question. And if biblical evidence doesn't support that they were this supposed despised flock, why the shepherds? Well, the point is simple. God sent the word of Christ's birth first to the people who needed it the most. That's it. The Jews weren't going to be receptive to this message. Right? 
He sent the messenger to people who were going to be open to receive it and were going to be willing to take it in and then willing to go do something about it. Augustus, we see, he was a Roman emperor. He wasn't going to receive this message. He wasn't, God wasn't going to send the angels to him. He definitely wasn't going to send it to someone we're going to talk about here in a minute. So the shepherds were the ones, even though they were out in the fields working, right? Think about it. Christ was born in about downtown Martinsburg, and the shepherds would have been over at the plaza, right? They're not going to know what's going on here. Not going to have a clue, but then God sends his messenger and says, go see them. And then look what they do. Look at this. So it was the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. See, two things they do here that we have to really apply to ourselves. First off, they responded immediately. They didn't sit around and wait. They didn't sit around and form a group and study it and say, yeah, okay, let's just let's see where we should take this. Let's see where we should go before we do this. They said, oh, the verse is going now. Let's go. Let's go see what it is that they're talking about. They saw an opportunity, and they responded immediately. And then, once they got there, they shared their experience. They didn't sit down and read a bunch of books, which I'm guilty of, right? And and inform this great theological message and say, okay, now we're ready to go. They didn't have all that training. What did they have? They had what God and God's messenger told him. And they said, I'm going to go and I'm going to give this experience to those who will listen to it. And we get so wrapped up sometimes in having to have the right degree, right? Or the right this, or the right message, or the right words, when all we have to do is go and tell our experience. Go and tell people what our life was like before God and tell them what it was like after we come to know Christ. Because that's all they did, and look at the impact they had. It's all we have to do, but we get stuck in our own ways, right? We get stuck in our own inability sometimes as we see it. We say, I can't do that. I have to have this, right? I can't go preach because I don't have, and fill in whatever blank you want to fill in there. You know what the shepherds are going to say? All we had was the angel of God telling us to go do it. And what did we do? We immediately responded to that. So you had the catalyst, right? Had the person sitting. Then you had the witnesses. No? I'm sure every single event, every single thing in your life has had a villain too, right? Every single thing that you've done in your life has had somebody there that has played the part of the villain. And our villain we're going to read about is actually in Matthew. 
Matthew 2, and it'll be up on the screen. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of the Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, There is he who has been born of the king of Jews. For we have seen the star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. So who was Herod? He was a king, right? He would have been a descendant of Esau. And Esau, for those of you who know Old Testament history a little bit, Esau and the Jews didn't quite get along, right? So Herod would have followed that line, and he would have been a balancing act again between the Roman and the Jews, and he would have been the Roman leader that was there. And he was actually a Jewish convert, but it was done purely for political reasons. He converted simply to kind of keep the peace and to stay in power. So he had no interest in finding out the actual Messiah. He had no interest in learning and seeing what the Messiah was going to do. The only interest he had was what? Stopping him. And see, we see this now after Jesus was born. There's a reason that Herod, when he puts the order out that all babies under the age of two are to be killed, it's because he doesn't know exactly when he was born. This doesn't happen the night that Christ is born or the week after it's born. This would have been many months or possibly a year after Christ was born. Because the wise men would have gone there and come back and told Herod, hey, we followed the star, right? And now Herod plays the villain because we know what he does. He puts out this decree that all, excuse me, that all under two are to be massacred, right? And that's what the word is. No matter what translation you want to use, it was a massacre of the infants that he does. But then... You see, I had something else highlighted up there. In all of Jerusalem with him. Why on earth would the city have been disturbed with Herod? The city should have been rejoicing. Our Messiah is here. No matter how they thought the Messiah was going to be, because you remember the Jewish leaders thought the Messiah was going to be a political Messiah, that it was going to lift them up out of Roman oppression, and if you're a Gentile, you're thinking it's the Messiah, so why would Jerusalem be troubled? Because they're living under this guy. And no matter how happy they want to be, no matter how much they want to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, they can't. Because they know something's going to happen to them if they do. See, this is kind of the flow chart that we see going on here. The Gentiles sought after Christ. When they found out who Christ was, the Gentiles, the shepherds in the field, and others we see start to seek him, right? They start going after him. Herod wanted to kill him. Why? Because it meant a danger to his power, and then a danger to his throne. At this point, the priests were pretty much indifferent. They don't get really into wanting to kill Christ until Christ's ministry starts. They're just kind of like, yeah, he was born over here. 
and kind of leave it at that, right? And Jerusalem is in trouble. Jerusalem, the attitude and the overall feeling of Jerusalem is trouble. Does this sound familiar? Today, the lost are seeking Christ, right? Those that are in need, those that are in wanting, are seeking Christ, right? Aren't our political powers trying to destroy them? I'm not talking about any particular party, but in general, right? It's trying to be oppressed. And we, the big C church, remains indifferent to it. We turn our backs to it and say, yeah, that's not my problem to deal with. I'm going to do my own little witness right here. I'm going to do my own little ministry right here and let the other people worry about the big stuff that's going outside. That's what the priests were doing back when Jesus was born. The I'm not going to deal with it because I know what my ministry is. Every single one of us has a ministry. I have a ministry on a daily basis that I minister to men. But that doesn't mean we are called to look away when our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and put down. And guess what? The country's in trouble, right? Just like Jerusalem was troubled, as we read, the country is in trouble too because we're turning our backs on what we're supposed to be caring about, supposed to be believing, and supposed to be doing. And we just kind of look the other way. Why? Well, see, we don't realize, we call Herod the villain here, right? We see Herod as the villain in the story, and that's absolutely correct. In the, birth, the story of Christ's birth, Herod is the villain. But so are the people of Jerusalem, right? Because we can be the villain through indifference. You don't have to actually do something to be the villain. You can just walk the other way, and you become the villain. When you see somebody who needs to hear God's word, and instead you say, nope, I have more important things to do. What is more important than that? That's what my question is. What is more important than sharing where someone is going to spend eternity? What is more important than helping someone understand why it is so important to have a relationship with Christ? I can't think of anything more important than that. But yet, we remain indifferent so many times. And I, when I say we, I don't stand up here on a pedestal saying, everybody except me, I am talking about myself at the front of the line of this. Right? You see what's going on. You see what's going on in our town. And I'll use the town. If you think we don't have a drug problem in this town, your head is in the sand. If you think there isn't a gambling problem, if you think there isn't an alcohol problem, if you think there isn't a prostitution problem, then you're willingly being indifferent to it. And what can the church do? 
That's, you know, that's what a lot of people say. Well, what can we do about it? We can pray. And that's the no-cost option to available to every single Christian. If you think the power of prayer doesn't work on those issues, anybody read about the little town down in the middle of West Virginia where the students of the high school all came together on the football field because the town was so ravaged by opioids? But they said, every day we're going to come here and we're going to do nothing but pray. And a year later, the opioid epidemic was almost gone out of the town. If you think prayer doesn't work, it does. And if you're not going to pray, then you're remaining indifferent and you're becoming the villain. Harsh words, you might not want to hear it, but it's true. And once again, I put myself at the front of the line when I say this because I'm just as guilty as everyone else of sometimes turning and looking the other way when I see something going on. So we have the catalyst. We have a witness in the shepherds. We have a villain in ourselves and in Herod. But there's one more, one more person in Christ's birth story that we need to look at. That's the faithful. Because you see, everyone in their life has a person that has always said, I'm going to wait. I know eventually this family member, this friend, this person I know is going to come to Christ. And I'm going to wait for it to happen so I can be there when it does. And we, of course, have that. And Simeon. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man had, ju- had been just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when, he was, when the parents in Man, my eyes are having a problem here. And the parents in child Christ to do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and blessed him in God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Now you are let. He waited so long and now he gets to see what he needs to see. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring a revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. This is a powerful prayer because he's saying not only Christ has come as this Messiah to the Gentiles, but what? To the glory of all people. We've talked about this in, in, in um, the Sunday school class I'm leading. As Paul's talking to the people in Ephesians, and he's trying to help both sides see that the entire time God's plan was one church, everybody together. It wasn't Jew and Gentile. It wasn't a hierarchy here or there. It was everyone together. And look at what Simeon says. He is going to be the glory. He's going to be the light, the revelation to the Gentiles and to your people and to the Jews. And he waited. And he waited. Now, we don't know how long he waited. We have no idea how long he was in that temple waiting. All he knew was that Christ said and God told him 
you will not pass away until you see the Messiah. That's all we know. And he says, okay, I'll be faithful. I'll wait. And we see this time and time and time again in the Bible. Hannah, right? I think right after this story, you're going to see Anna, right? People waiting on God, waiting for him to fulfill what he says he's going to do in their life. The faithful. We all have a person like this in our life. Every single one of us does. You might even be that person to somebody else. When I said, which one do you fall into? Which one of these do you fall into? You might be that faithful person, that person that prays for that family member, that friend that doesn't know Christ. Every single day, you are on your knees saying, please help this person see the importance of a relationship with you in your life. I don't do that. I know which one I fall into here. It's probably going to be the villain because of that indifference, right? Catalyst, witness, villain, faithful. Which one are you? And see, here's the thing. Here's the great thing about all of this. It doesn't matter which one you are because Christ is ready to accept you no matter what. It does not matter which one you say, I'm the villain and I have messed so many people over in my life that I'm never going to be able to be forgiven. Well, there's one person that will. All you got to do is come to him. All you have to do is come and say, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Or maybe you're the catalyst. See, the catalyst can be good or bad, right? If you're the catalyst and you can say, well, I've ignited fire in people and have people going to do ministry, that's great. That's, a, that's the good catalyst, right? But you can also be the bad catalyst. Ever set somebody up with a person that eh, maybe didn't work out quite right? I got this great friend I want you to meet. And then that friend comes back and goes, what were you thinking? You're the catalyst, right? And of course, I'm using that as a smaller metaphor for larger events that could have possibly happened. It doesn't matter which one you are because Christ is saying, I want you. No matter what label you put on yourself, Christ is saying, I want you anyway. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you don't know him already, first off, what are you waiting for? That's the first question I have for you. What are you waiting for? How much more in your life needs to go wrong before you say, okay, I get it now. <laughs> a lot had to go wrong in my life before I said I get it now. One of the hardest people to witness and talk to about God are people who have everything going right in their life. Because they say, what do I need that for? I have the good car. I have the great house. I have my, the perfect kids. And any parent in here, if you have a perfect kid, please raise your hand. All right. Yeah. I have all this. What do I need God for? Well, because guess what? 
you're the villain now because you're indifferent to everything that's going on around you. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, if you're sitting in this room right now, if you're watching this online right now, and you don't have that relationship with Christ, talk to me, talk to Keith, talk to Jeff, talk to Hugo, talk to an elder, a deacon, on how you can get it. If you're watching online, go find someone you trust that you know is in a Bible-based church and find out how you can have that relationship. Which one are you? Go into the Christmas season looking at that and trying to decide. And then if you say, I don't like the label I put on myself, you can change it. See, I don't like labeling myself the villain. I don't think, if you do like labeling yourself the villain, there's a whole other set of issues we got to talk about. But I don't like labeling myself the villain. And I want to change that. And that's what I'm going to ask God going into next year to help me with. Help me become less indifferent to those needs that are around me. Could I ask everyone now to stand? We're going to sing a song, hopefully. <laughs> um, who are you? Who are you? Which one of you out of here? And, and I don't think there's a better song to illustrate this, to ask that question than this. So.